This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the One who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Well, friends, on this 10th of November, as the year is coming to a close, as the days are getting shorter, leaves are falling from the trees, the skies are grayer, so the church year mimics the year of nature. We're coming to the end of the church year, the liturgical year, and so our readings are taking on increasingly a dark, brooding, and foreboding quality. All the readings today are about the end of the world, about the last things. What happens when the light finally goes out on this world? It's very important the church insists every year that we look hard at these difficult realities. The first reading I want to look at is actually our second reading for the Mass today. It's the earliest Christian writing we have. The first letter that Paul wrote to the Christians of the Thessalonians. This comes from maybe the early years of the 50s of the first century, so long before any of the Gospels were written. It's the first of Paul's letters. And what we find is that from these very early days, Christians were concerned with this question of the end. Listen to Paul. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, about those who have fallen asleep, so that you may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose. So too will God, through Jesus, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What happens at the end? What happens at death? What happens after death? The very first Christians from the earliest days were profoundly concerned with these questions. What Paul states here is the ground, to use the technical term now, of our eschatological hope. The ground for our hope that God's love will carry us through this terrible experience of death and carry us through to deeper life. We believe that Jesus died and rose. So too will God, through Jesus, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It struck the first Christians, Paul especially, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead had changed everything. It had reversed the cosmic process that seemed to move inexorably toward death. Now, in this great case, death had been trumped. Death had been turned back. Now someone who had died had come back to life, indeed had passed into the fullness of life. It's because of that hope, because of that fact, that we all hope to live beyond death. Now listen to Paul as he gets a little bit more specific about all of this. For the Lord himself, with a word of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, will come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. 
Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore console one another with these words. Now these are much commented upon words. In the course of the Christian centuries, many theologians and spiritual writers and mystics have puzzled over these words. Today they're inspiring an enormous interest. I've spoken to you before about the Left Behind series, that, that series of books about the end of the world, about the rapture that Christ will come and take his followers into heaven with him, and th thus inaugurating the end of the world. What do we make of this? Well, it's always concerned me that if these readings are simply descriptive of what will in fact happen at that precise moment of the end of time, then for 99.5% of Christians who've read this passage over the centuries, they basically mean nothing. If they're simply about that particular event, when the world as a whole comes to a close, cosmically, then those of us who don't live at that time, well, we basically get nothing from these readings. I think that goes against the instinct of the church that says, no, these are for all Christians of all time. In fact, every generation should read these words and gain from them, learn from them. So how do we make sense of it? Let's face something. For everybody listening to me, let's say within, for everybody now, within the next 90 years, everyone is going to experience what Paul is talking about. For everybody hearing me within the next, let's say, 90 years, the world as you know it is going to end. The lights will go out. The trees, the sky, the birds, your friends, the beauties and joys of this world will be erased. Everything will come to a close. Of course, what I'm talking about is the fact of death. The fact of your death and mine. When will the world as a whole end? Well, I don't know. Jesus said not even the Son knows, only the Father knows. I think it's idle for us to speculate excessively about that. But we all know that our world, as far as we're concerned, will come to an end. We will all face this eschatological moment. And so what do we do? I think these readings, this one from Paul and the Gospel, which I'll speak of in a second, are first of all compelling us to look. They're compelling us to see this fact. Blaise Pascal, I've spoken of him before, 17th century Catholic philosopher, theologian. He said, most of us spend most of our time diverting ourselves from this great question. Our sports, our games, our business, our interests, the things that we do for fun, for the most part, Pascal says, they are diversions from this question, this fact. We know we're going to die. We have to face this, but we don't want to face it. It's the most unpleasant of questions, and so we do this and we do that. We look here, we look there. We spend most of our time diverting ourselves from it. 
For Pascal, of course, who died at the age of 39, died quite young, looking at this question is indispensable. You'll also find it in the rule of St. Benedict, in some ways the founding document of Western monasticism. St. Benedict says to his monks, hold before your mind's eye every day your own death. There was a custom throughout the Middle Ages. It lasted up until relatively modern times in certain Benedictine communities that the monks were encouraged to dig a shovel of their own grave every day. Is it morbid? Well, it's not really morbid. It's looking seriously and honestly at this question. You know, speaking of this, last summer I spent a few days at Gethsemane Abbey, Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky. That's where Thomas Merton was a monk for many years, probably the greatest spiritual writer of the 20th century, and a hero of mine. And the room I was in looked right out over Merton's grave. He's buried with his brother monks right next to the church. And it was a wonderful meditation for me every day to look out at the grave of Merton. Morbid fascination? No. I think it's an honest Christian attempt to say, yes, this is a fact that we have to deal with. We have to look at it. You know, the rosary prayer, I know a lot of you pray the rosary. The rosary is what the spiritual masters call a memento mori, a reminder of death. At the close of every Hail Mary, we say, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Now and at the hour of our death, amen. If you pray the regular rosary, five decades, 50 times a day, you remind yourself of your own death. You anticipate it, not morbidly, but honestly. You look to it, and you pray for courage and grace at that hour. All of this, I think, is being signaled very clearly in the gospel for today. We're in that wonderful section of Matthew, chapter 25. All kinds of famous parables and stories. This is the parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins. Remember the story? The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones, when taking their lamps, brought no oil with them, but the wise brought flasks of oil with their lamps. Since the bridegroom was long delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Well, it's a scene taken from the ordinary life of Jesus' time, these wedding celebrations that went on for many days. At this one point, the, we call them the bridesmaids, had the task of escorting the groom to the celebration. But they had to wait for him. So here they are waiting for the groom to come. Well, some have their lamps ready. They have oil in their lamps. Others do not. So that if and when the groom comes at night, some will be ready to accompany him. Others will not. Well, of course, the analogy is clear. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. We are waiting so he might draw us into the great celebration of heaven. When will this happen? At our death. That's when the bridegroom will come for each one of us. What's our task? To be vigilant and to be ready. Not diverted into drowsiness 
not diverted into unpreparedness, but to be watching, vigilant, ready. When will he come? I don't know. You don't know. I could die today. I could die in 45 years. I could die in 20 years. I don't know. But the key is to be ready so that when he comes, I'm prepared. What does it mean, Christians, concretely, to have oil in our lamps? What does it mean, concretely, to be ready, to be looking honestly at the fact of our own death at the end of the world? Can I give you a few recommendations? I think, first of all, it means to be a person of steady and regular prayer. Stay in contact with God. Don't allow your relationship with the Lord to fall into disrepair. Contemplate the things of God on a regular basis. Look into the eternity of God, even as you live within time and space. That's what prayer is, taking the time to look honestly and deeply. Second recommendation, a way of keeping the lamp filled, stay close to the sacrament of reconciliation, confession. Not obsessively, not in a scrupulous way, but regularly to bring your sins before the Lord and seek his forgiveness. Don't wait until the last second, the last minute, but be a regular participant in this sacrament of confession forgiveness. Third recommendation, a way of keeping the oil in the lamp. Don't let grudges and resentments fester. Christians, keep your relationships, especially the deep and important ones, in good repair. You've got a grudge, a hatred, a lack of forgiveness. Well, deal with that. How many people on their deathbed, how many people as the end is coming close, deeply regret the fact that they let so many relationships fall? Keep them in good shape. Just the last one in these last few seconds. Like a good Benedictine, keep a memento mori close at hand. I mean some concrete reminder of your own death. A symbol, a picture, whatever it is. But remind yourself every day that you are going to die. In this way, we keep ourselves vigilant, prepared, oil in the lamps, ready for the Lord when he comes. God bless. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. To purchase copies of the word on fire, call 847-297-4360. That's 847-297-4360. Four three six zero.